The time is 6 p.m. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, December the 13th, 2023. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I am your host, Diego Alegria. In tonight's news... Wisconsin's LBGTQ Plus Caucus has reintroduced two marriage equality bills. A state Democrat explains a new election bill. In breaking news, the UW Board of Regents has agreed to a deal with the Republican legislature. And in the second half, we talk with a local barista, get the most in-depth weather report on the airwaves, and the city of Madison makes history. 60 years ago. This is Diego Alegria and Rob McClure with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. In breaking news tonight, the UW Board of Regents approved a deal that would restructure DEI jobs in the UW system. The deal was approved about 20 minutes ago with a vote of 11 regents in favor, six voting opposed. Two UW regents who were opposed to passing the deal on Saturday, Staten and Bogust, flipped their votes this evening. Under the deal, the UW system will initiate a three-year moratorium on hiring administrators and and diversity, equity, and inclusion employees. A third of existing DEI jobs will be restructured over the next two academic years. (coughs) Pardon me. UW-Madison will also create a tenured professorship dedicated to conservative thought or classical economic theory or classical liberalism. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. UW-Madison will also allow a program called the Target of Opportunity expire at the end of the school year. That program is targeted at at attracting more diverse faculty to the campus. In return, UW System employees will receive their cost of living pay increases, which have been held up for months. The UW System will receive nearly $800 million extra dollars for infrastructure and other spending, including a new desperately sought engineering building on the UW-Madison campus. Tonight's meeting was the fifth in a chaotic seven days. Meanwhile, yesterday's Board of Regent meeting may have violated Wisconsin's open meetings laws, reports the Wisconsin Journal Sentinel. That's according to a memo from state legal counsel prepared at the request of a Milwaukee state representative who had requested that the meeting be public, not closed. Voss told conservative media early last week that the proposal was his, quote, last and final offer. The leader of the state Senate has floated the idea of of failing to confirm regents who vote against the deal, a rare step that would essentially fire them. The Wisconsin Supreme Court today declined to hear a lawsuit that asked the court to end Wisconsin's school choice program, reports the Associated Press. The lawsuit was filled this fall after the state Supreme Court shifted ideological control in the summer. It was brought by several Wisconsin residents and bankrolled by a liberal super PAC. It takes issue with how voucher and charter schools are funded, alleging that the funding mechanism violates the state's constitution. Milwaukee is home to the first school choice program 
in the nation, starting off as an experiment three decades ago to help low-income students. Democrats have long maintained that voucher and charter schools drain resources away from public schools. Meanwhile, today, conservative groups celebrated the Supreme Court's denial to hear the case directly. But the case could still be filled in a lower court and work its way up to the state Supreme Court. Well, as we heard on the BBC, House GOP members are gearing up to begin the proceedings of a committee to impeach President Biden. And Wisconsin Congressman Scott Fitzgerald says there's no need for an investigation. He says there's enough evidence now to vote on impeachment. Representative Fitzgerald, who formerly led the Wisconsin State Senate before moving to Washington, D.C., says the current evidence suggests an impeachment vote should be held immediately and a trial should begin in the United States Senate. As a member of the House Judiciary Committee, Fitzgerald says that he has enough evidence linking the president to the alleged misdeeds of his son, Hunter, to constitute, quote, high crimes and misdemeanors. <coughs> Pardon me. The House leadership, however, said that they are committed to going through the process of an actual public investigation before a vote on impeachment. Meanwhile, the state Senate is likely to pass legislation that would make it much easier for out-of-state mental health teleservices provide services to Wisconsin residents. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that currently, mental health providers must be licensed in Wisconsin to treat patients. The bill would allow providers to submit their license from an out-of-state agency. That's as adequate mental health services are in short supply in the state, and especially in rural areas. In Buffalo County, in western Wisconsin, there is one mental health provider for its about 13,000 residents. Out-of-state mental health treatment was allowed during the pandemic when an emergency medical order was issued. That order ended six months ago. After a teacher in Milwaukee in a Milwaukee suburban school was fired last year for criticizing a decision to ban a performance of an LGBTQ pride anthem, a coalition is seeking a federal investigation into the city into the school's climate. The coalition, which includes parents and a former teacher at Waukesha School District, says they've filed federal complaints over the district's treatment of LGBTQ plus students and staff. That's according to reporting from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. In 2021, the school district fired a kindergarten teacher for refusing to take down a pride flag. Last year, a grade school teacher was fired for allowing her class to sing the song Rainbow Land. And in other education news, a divided board of the Kenosha School District voted last night night to close six schools as it struggles under significant budget deficits and declining enrollment. The plan comes after months of discussion and a recommendation from the district to close the schools. Five elementary schools and one middle school will close. At the same time, the district will cut back the staff and programs of an alternative high school, reports local radio WGTD. The decision came after hours of passionate discussion and was characterized by one school board member as discriminatory, discriminatory and ripe for a lawsuit. 
Property taxes for schools, city services, and the county are all up. And while they increase every year, the size of this year's increase is newsworthy. Let's start with the biggest chunk of the tax burden, that is schools. School property taxes are on on an average home in Madison will increase by $400 this year, which is by far the biggest increase in the last 13 years. But didn't the half a billion dollars in school aid passed by the legislature cut our local taxes? Well, not in Madison, because our home and other property values are high. The aid we receive is concomitantly low. City taxes will be up by about 4%. Home values are up. City employees will be seeing a 6% raise bump, pay bump. But again, the state will give the city only about $27 per person in aid. Of the 1,400 cities, villages, and towns in Wisconsin, Madison has the distinction of getting the lowest level of aid. County taxes will go up a record 14% this year. Taken together, Dane County residents will continue to pay the highest property taxes in the state, an average of $6,000. Those were the headlines. And now, on on to the rest of today's top stories. Members of Wisconsin's LGBTQ plus caucus have announced that they plan to reintroduce two bills that would codify marriage equality under state law. Our, rep- our producer, Faye Parks, Parks, has the details. The first bill proposes a constitutional amendment to recognize all marriages. Right now, the state's constitution only recognizes marriages between a man and a woman. It would also grant all marriages the same status under the law. Senator Mark Spritzer, a Democrat from Beloit, is a member of the LGBTQ plus caucus. If we don't pass this constitutional amendment this legislative session on first consideration, we won't be able to get it on the ballot in time before 2026. And 2026 would be the 20-year anniversary of having this discriminatory language in our Constitution. And that would be a really embarrassing milestone to hit. The second bill the Marriage and Family Equality Act would update current state statutes to include gender-neutral language from husband and wife to spouses. Senator Spritzer says that the current language has symbolic and practical consequences. There is literally a discount husband and wife fishing license that some same-sex couple had to encounter and make the argument that actually they should get that too because the law should now be extended to all married couples. But Senator Spritzer says some of the most serious problems arise when it comes to parental rights. This proposal would make sure that all married couples have the right to jointly adopt children and jointly have a child through artificial insemination. It would also codify the presumption that two people who have a child within their marriage are the parents of that child. The LGBTQ caucus has introduced similar legislation in the last four consecutive sessions. In 2019, two state Republicans co-sponsored the bill to update statutes with gender-neutral language, reports Wisconsin Watch. But neither bill made it out of the legislature. Senator Spritzer says, 
I certainly have Republican colleagues who are still anti-gay, who don't personally support same-sex marriage, but mostly what I hear is people who tell me privately that they're personally fine with it, but part of their political base still isn't, and they don't want to take the political risk and go out on a limb to co-sponsor or vote for these bills. Opponents to the bills argue that the U.S. Supreme Court already legalized same-sex marriage in 2015, and the state of Wisconsin must abide by that ruling. They've even characterized the bills as cleanup. In response, Representative Lee Snodgrass, a Democrat from Appleton, says, This is making sure that all language reflects equality under the law when it comes to marriage equality, when it comes to having children together in a relationship, in a marriage. So to say that is incredibly dismissive and incredibly offensive. And people who make comments like that really do not think outside of their own experience and how it might impact some of the people in their community, in their neighborhood, and even in their family. The constitutional amendment to recognize all marriages needs to pass in two successive sessions and get enough votes in a statewide referendum before it can come into effect. Right now, members of Wisconsin's LGBTQ plus caucus are seeking co-sponsors on both bills with January 5th as the deadline to sign on. We will continue to try and remain hopeful that Republicans in the state assembly and in the state Senate will come over and will agree that yes, under the eyes of the law, same-sex couples deserve the same rights as heterosexual couples when it comes to marriage equality. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Now, Wisconsin lawmakers are collaborating across the aisle to change how your ballot looks in federal elections. They've proposed a ranked choice ballot, where voters can choose to rank their top choices for each office. Earlier today, WORT News producer Faye Park spoke to Senator Jeff Smith, a Democrat from Brunswick. He introduced the bill alongside three of his colleagues, two Republicans and one Democrat. Senator Smith has the rundown on the proposal, what it would change and how it would work. Thank you for joining me, Senator Smith. Thanks for having me. So in very basic terms, can you explain how ranked choice voting would work? This particular bill we call Final Five voting because it's not pure ranked choice voting, meaning that we precede the general election with an open primary where a voter would go in and see all the candidates for U.S. Congress, for instance, and it won't matter what party they are representing, they would all be listed. You can choose one candidate to vote for, and it doesn't matter which party. Currently, when you go to a primary election, you have to choose. You're either going to vote in the Republican column or the Democratic column. In this case, you would now just vote for one person out of that column, and it could be any party. Then from there, the top five vote getters from that open primary move on to the general election. And that's when a voter would rank those five when they get to the voting booth. From what I understand, if a person's first choice was eliminated, they didn't receive enough first choice votes, Mm -hmm. their vote would automatically be counted on their second choice. Is that right? And then so on. Yep, that's right. And so you'd have round if, in fact, probably not very likely, but if the first round there is one candidate that gets over 50%, then we'd be done. 
the whole idea is to have a candidate that gets over 50% of the vote or a majority, and they become the winner of that seat. So it can take the first round. That doesn't happen. And your first choice is fifth, because that fifth place person is, go- person is going to be knocked off. Then your second choice receives your vote and so forth until we get to a majority winner. And so in what elections would the ranked choice voting be implemented? In the case of the bill that I'm authoring, it's for our congressional seats, meaning for U.S. House of Representatives and for U.S. Senate. Do you anticipate extending it to statewide and presidential elections in the future? And why have you started with federal elections? Well, we feel like the federal elections get the attention. And the stalemate that we see in Congress these days, which is not serving people well, it needs to be addressed. And that's just our number one priority here. But, uh, you know, if, if it becomes something that people really like, I would be very much open to moving further ahead and adding state legislature to that. So ranked choice voting is generating nationwide interest at the moment, but only Alaska and Maine currently use ranked choice ballots in state and federal elections. Did you use them as a model at all in this bill? Thanks for asking that question, because they are two different systems. Yes, Maine actually uses ranked choice voting, but they don't use final five system. Alaska, they call it Final Four. They've they've gone to Final Four, but they do use the system I'm talking about, and it seems to be working pretty well in Alaska. They have recently elected the first Native Alaskan to Congress in their history, and it's, I think, in part because it was an opportunity for people to actually vote for the person that they align with value-wise over voting for whomever the party chose to put on the ballot for them. In Maine, we had uh, a hearing yesterday, as you know, and we had testimony in opposition to our system, and they, and they used that as an example how confusing it was in Maine. Well, it certainly is when you get 30 people on a ballot, which was one of the examples that they told us about. And so people have to rank 30-some people. That certainly is confusing. And it took 30, they said 35, actually, and it took 33 rounds for them to get to a winner. That is definitely a problem. But in the case of final five voting, again, it's that open primary, which is not ranked. It's just one vote. And then you get to the final five and you only have to rank five persons. And I think that is a huge difference maker. And really, the bottom line is for this system, it's about changing the behaviors of our elected officials more than changing who gets elected. So this is a pretty foundational change. Out of curiosity, why is this a bill instead of a constitutional amendment? You know, Faye, I appreciate you asking that question because there is way too much of a hurry often to run to the Constitution to get something you want done because it should first come through in form of a bill so that you can work out the kinks before it becomes something that is embedded in your constitution and you don't have any chance to change and correct any errors that might have been made along the way. Generally, ranked choice voting is a more liberal concept. Why do you think that is, and why do you think Wisconsin Republicans are co-sponsoring this bill now? Frankly, there are Republican colleagues that I serve with, both houses, that want change as much as I do and want to take away that extreme pressure from both the left and the right that is put on them in a primary and by the parties. 
The parties have too much power in the sense that they are controlled by the more extreme factions of the party because that's who shows up in primaries. We're lucky to get 10% of the voting public to show up in a primary. And the people who show up are the ones who are more extreme oftentimes and are the ones who pretty much eat and breathe politics, right? So we, we need to do everything we can, I think, personally, to encourage more people to show up when we really need them to, and that's for every election, including primaries. And I think this is one of those possibilities that are going to encourage more participation, both by candidates and by voters. We also know that Wisconsin is a battleground state and a hotspot of election denial. Is this bill an attempt to address those issues? I sure wish it would. Yesterday, I was disappointed to see so many of the um, same persons I've seen that are election deniers that, uh, for whatever reason, feel like anything we introduce is some sort of uh, gimmick that they don't like. We tried our best to try to explain how it works, and there's just a lot of distrust. I don't blame a lot of people for having so much distrust, but if it's not working for you now, why wouldn't you want to try something different? And by the way, yesterday in our eight-hour hearing on this bill, there were a number of people in suits who came from out of state. We had someone from Oklahoma, someone from Texas. We had three people from Maine. We had someone from Illinois and Minnesota. And I would think that the people who are skeptics would have to also ask the same question I asked them. Why are you here to uh, tell us in Wisconsin how we should manage our elections? Is it because we're a battleground state? I kind of think that might be. They don't want the change to happen because they have more control over our elections in the system that we have now. So why introduce this bill now? Can you walk us through the timing? We introduced this bill actually the last session as well, and we just haven't gotten the attention, including introducing it this session, until after we get through the budget, which happens to be the first six months of the year, of an odd-numbered year. Hopefully, we could get an exec meaning a vote out of our committee as soon as possible. I mean, you know, there's no reason why we shouldn't, except that uh, it'll be up to the committee chair to determine whether or not he supports it and wants to help us get it through and then get it to the floor. I mean, uh, oftentimes we see bills that get to the floor within a week or two of being introduced. But then there are times because the majority party chooses not to um, bring anything to the floor or to delay it, it takes months and then they say they ran out of time. So it's politics in play. And how likely would you say it is that this bill will be signed into law? Do you think you have the votes in the legislature? And have you heard from Governor Evers at all? No, frankly, I don't expect we're going to have that kind of success this go-around. This will be our second go-around with this bill. It is such a big change and a big idea that it takes a lot of time for people to uh, grasp the concept and to accept it. And maybe the more times that Congress holds us hostage over a debt ceiling argument or a budget bill, maybe people will finally have had enough and said, let's try something different. And I sure hope they agree with me that it is time for something different. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? My office is open and I'm open for, for talking about this subject anytime. And The one thing I will say that when I have constituents that I speak to that have differing points of views and we have a discussion, generally they'll say something like, why can't you all just get along? 
or um, we need to eliminate the parties that, you know, those are favorite things for people to say. I explain this bill to them, and people are really enthusiastically support of an idea like this. So out in the public, it's a winner, but we just have to get the uh, elected officials that I serve with to also get on board. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Senator Smith. I appreciate that opportunity. That was Senator Jeff Smith, a Democrat from Brunswick. He and some of his colleagues in the state legislature from both sides of the aisle are collaborating on a proposal that would implement ranked choice voting in federal elections. Senator Smith says many of his constituents are on board, but the bill is unlikely to pass in this session. He also says they're likely to reintroduce the bill until it gets enough support, in the hopes that it will help address the contentious two-party system. And the time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Diego Alegria. Thanks for staying with us. Madison has no shortage of coffee shops. When sipping your drink from your favorite spot in town, have you ever wondered how much preparation goes into that cup? Feature contribution Riley Cutright has a peek behind the scenes in this week's Madison's Backbone. She spoke with Mikey, who is here to lay it all down for us, discussing their experience as such an integral part of our morning. If at any point I'm simply not smiling passively, or if the way that I behave changes in the slightest way to even a more neutral manner, people will notice right away. They know something's wrong. So I sort of have no choice but to keep that face, regardless of what the scenario is. And that's labor. That's emotional labor. A community is a unified body of individuals sharing something in common. Over a quarter of a million people call Madison, Wisconsin their home. Have you ever wondered about the secret to Madison's vibrant and unique community? Well, I have the answer for you. Workers. This segment features the working voices who undeniably strengthen and brighten Madison's community on the daily. I am Riley Cutright, and this is Madison's Backbone. All right, everyone, welcome to Madison's Backbone. I'm here with Mikey this week, and we're going to talk about what it's like being a barista. My first question is, how did you get your start? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, I actually got my start uh, what is now just over six years ago. And at the time, I had come off of a period of about six months of being homeless. And I was trying to find an entry point into the working world. Whether or not I wanted to, you know, it was what had to be done. And at that stage, and for a long time after that, my brother was a barista. And so what my brother was doing was working in a shuttle outside the airport, 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. He's making 
making coffee for people outside the airport. And so what I had the opportunity to do was to join him there overnight and learn directly from him. The moment he hasn't got a customer to serve, he's teaching me how to make coffees. So I was able to establish this sort of skill ahead of time that when I approached Starbucks initially, this is the first time I worked with them in 2017, I had a leg to stand on as well. I said, I have something of a skill set to come with. I have no experience whatsoever, but this is what I do have. And I sort of talked my way into the job that way. Learning something from somebody that they care about, that they are passionate about, it makes it so much easier to learn. What exactly do you do during your workday? To put it best, when I arrive at work early in the morning, the way my day begins is with some very solid routine. I do almost the exact same routine every single morning and I do it very comfortably. I love doing that. I get everything set up for the day. So a big part of my early day is to prepare beverage components, prepare the store and all the utilities that we use for not just myself, but everybody who's going to be working during peak hours of the day. And then for the majority of the rest of the time, I more or less do exactly as I'm told, which is something that I kind of really like. I like not having to think too hard about it. I appreciate no longer having to direct people myself. To get down to the nitty gritty, what I do is I speak to people and I make things for them that they love, which is a a huge thing that I enjoy doing. I love crafting a beverage for somebody knowing that they're about to adore it. And a lot of what I do there also involves just chatting with them at the beginning of the process, at the end of the process. And I guess what I really enjoy about that is that they remember me afterwards. My next question is, what hours of the day do you work? I work very consistently now between 4.30 a.m. and 12.30 p.m. On some days, I get to go home at 12 noon. They used to schedule me until sometimes 9.30, 10.30. That's long gone. So now I work four pretty standard, consistent shifts. And if I'm unlucky, they'll call me in on a Thursday as well. I mean, you said that Mm -hmm. if you're unlucky, they call you on Thursday. So do you get some days of the week off or like what kind of do you? Is it different every time or do you have a set schedule? Right now it's relatively consistent. I'm so happy to tell you that I get Fridays and Saturdays off. I worked hard to make that happen. See, it sounds like three days off is a lot sometimes. But the truth is, of course, because I have two jobs to do, I get, you know, one and a half days off. How does that impact your life? Do you enjoy working those shifts? Like some people really enjoy working the odd hours and they kind of seek Mm -hmm. that out. But do you enjoy working those really, really early morning shifts? Do you enjoy consistency or... I think yes to both. I've definitely grown very accustomed to it. When I began my tenure with this company, I was working afternoons through evenings that uh, when I'd go home, usually the sun's already down. But as it is now with these AM shifts, I, I think I've come to really love them. There's something I enjoy about having the afternoon to myself, even if it means I go to bed at a responsible time. That's what I'll call it. Yeah, I love having the afternoon to myself. I love being able to go home with the sun still shining. And whether or not I really enjoy waking up early, I can't say genuinely genuinely that I do, I definitely feel some sense of, well done, Mikey, you got up early. You know, you're getting up early. You can do that. And what's absurd about it to me really is the way that so many people, I'll ask them how they're doing and they say, oh, it's too early to know. I'm checking the clock. It's 8 a.m. I've been up for five hours, you know. What is the most difficult part of your job? The best way to put it is keeping up a facade in the sense that a lot of the time that I am working, I get to be 100% myself and genuine. And then a lot of the time I have no choice but to act the same way that I would on one of those days, even when I do not. I don't really have a choice in that matter in the sense that there's an expectation of us all to not just smile, 
but be our best selves at all times and be on our best behavior as it is in any service industry. And, you know, I, I'm going through the same problems as everybody else is. You know, like I was just telling you, our family dog passed away and it makes no difference to everybody who comes into my store. It makes no difference to upper management. I have to put on a smile. And, and what I notice about that is that everybody knows immediately if I fail to maintain that facade. If at any point I'm simply not smiling passively or if the way that I behave changes in the slightest way to even a more neutral manner, people will notice right away. They know something's wrong. And so I sort of have no choice but to keep that face regardless of what the scenario is. And that's labor. That's emotional labor. Emotional labor. I love it. Yeah. It's awesome. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, it is emotional labor for you to have to like hold that smile and hold that tone when somebody says something out of pocket to you. Do you have a favorite part about your job? In general, favorites are difficult to identify for me, but I think for this one, I know for a fact it's the people that I work with. To a degree, also the people that I get to see every day on the other side of the bar, but 100% the answer is the, the people that I work with intimately every day. I come back to this job every day to spend time with my coworkers. I tolerate some other parts of it for the benefit of spending time with my coworkers al alongside the pay. This role has introduced me to so many people that I'm incredibly grateful to have met that I simply would never otherwise have done so. There are people there that I would consider some of my closest friends without question, people that I can confide my deepest secrets to, you know, people that I trust with my life, and that is what keeps me going on the day-to-day. -day. I find fulfillment from spending time with some of these people. Like I said, there are some customers who I do cherish as well. I mean, if there's anybody there that I could tell honestly what's going on in my life, I think that's kind of big. To put it summarily, it's people. What kind of educational background do you have? Uh, yeah, not related to what I'm doing in any capacity. I finished high school in New Zealand before I moved out here. And in addition to that, I did do some tertiary study there. I have a diploma in PC support because at the time I had absolutely no clue what I was going to do career-wise. And that's not to say that I know for a fact what I'm going to do now, but I went for something that was accessible to me. And I wouldn't, I want to say relatively affordable on account of the fact that I'm almost finished with my student loan there. And besides that, nothing. I never went to college in the greater capacity. Coffee wise, I have like a, a meaningless certificate that says I went through a course, you know, that nobody would take into account anyway. Do you think that you and other people in your profession receive enough recognition? The short answer is no. I think in a lot of ways, the way I want to open this is that I see a lot of people every day. I talk to a lot of people every day. And what I can tell right away sometimes from speaking with them is that they've absolutely never worked in a service career before. And it does change you. You know, it's, it, it does change your bottom line. And if you don't have that perspective, you behave a different way. I think the service that we provide is valid. I think the service that we provide needs to be compensated appropriately. And I think we need to be treated with respect just like absolutely everybody else does. But there's this impression that it's a transient sort of role to be in, that it's a temporary thing or that it's a thing that you can't spend the rest of your life doing, but simply people do. So many people in the community rely on that, you know, we might open on Thanksgiving an hour later than normal and people want to speak to the manager because they drove from XYZ place in the city at this time before work or what have you. So if it's as important to them as it is when they say so, I think it could be just as important when they speak about us in hindsight or when they pay us as well. 
there's a lot of people for whom we are an integral part of their morning. People rely on us in some sense, and we set the tone for them in other senses. So I think it's a little bit overlooked what kind of a role we have in people's day-to-day life, given the context of it being really a fast food restaurant in some senses. Thanks for tuning in this week to Madison's Backbone. We'll be back with part two, where Mikey and I continue to talk about what it's like being a barista. It's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob Beckler. Well, even though these uh, past couple of days have seemed, uh, well, probably will have seemed mild, at least to the experienced Wisconsinites out among you, uh, they were at least cool, a cool down compared to the upper 40s and uh, mid 50s that we saw at the end of last week. And although I thought that yesterday might have had a shot at actually being colder than normal, in the event it uh, turned out that it was a couple of degrees above, So we do remain on target here in Madison to see every day this month turn up above normal. As I mentioned on the Monday forecast, that hasn't happened in a while. And I did mention this uh, prospect on the Monday morning forecast after uh, looking at the uh, longer-term forecasts that were coming out of the Climate Prediction Center. Uh, Of course, it's always a crapshoot with a prediction like this once you get out past a week or 10 days. Uh, But the near-term days certainly look to be uh, warmer than normal, almost certainly. Uh, We hit 41 degrees today. That's about 8 degrees above our normal high temperature. And we've got an upper ridge about to break over us from the west and north tomorrow. So we'll probably run a bit warmer than that for uh, two or three days anyway before we cool again then slightly over the weekend. Uh, Even then, though, temperatures are uh, quite likely to remain above normal. And the general consensus off the longer-range forecast models is indicating warmer-than-normal temperatures Stretching out through much of next week, uh, indeed with another uh, slight warming trend actually as we get out towards the middle and end of next week. And I probably don't even need to utter the term El Nino at this point since it's uh, gotten a lot of press recently and I don't want to beat it into the ground exactly, but the atmosphere over North America could hardly be reacting in more classic fashion to this uh, warming in the eastern tropical Pacific than it's doing just now. And if you want to have a look at that, a look at what I'm talking about, I recommend having a peek at the uh, water vapor image of the Pacific Basin in North America. That's one of the links that we have up in the featured graphics on the WORT weather webpage. This evening, that'll give you the uh, kind of 22,000-mile view, as it were, of the uh, equator and the Pacific Ocean and North America from the Goes West satellite. And on that image, you can see the subtropical branch of the jet stream lifting east-northeast off a bloom of convection down uh, over that uh, warmed area of the eastern equatorial Pacific, with the jet stream then running up across Mexico and the Gulf Coast towards uh, the eastern seaboard. And far to its northwest, the polar jet is positioned in kind of similar fashion, in this case pumping warm air northeastward across Canada off the Pacific Ocean, uh, therefore displacing a good portion of the continental polar air that's usually up there this time of year and producing, well, producing the upper ridge that I just mentioned, which is going to be warming us over the next few days. 
The southern branch of the uh, jet is basically blocking our moisture, and the northern branch is blocking our cold air. So that's why there's nothing like uh, winter happening in Wisconsin at the moment. So that's a pretty simple rendering there. Uh, Indeed, an oversimplified one for the short time we have here. But uh, there are some very comprehensive and yet very tractable explanations of how El Nino affects our weather here. On the weather webpage, they're under the winter outlook that's up at the top there. Uh, And if you look at that paragraph, click the uh, little bit that says Enso blog, that link will take you to a number of excellent articles with graphics that will do a much better job of explaining El Nino and its effects than I can at the moment. Uh, Before I get to the forecast, though, I will mention uh, that some of the energy from the deep upper trough that's visible on the water vapor image off the west coast is going to be working ashore uh, as we get somewhere out towards the end of next week, so a ways out. But that provides our next best chance for uh, at least a possible spell of cooling and snow production. This would be out towards probably Friday or Saturday of next weekend. So we'll keep an eye on that to at least hopefully give us something approximating winter around here. Uh, But back uh, to the more immediate forecast, tonight uh, occasional passing high clouds uh, will be all that will be marring the uh, otherwise moonless sky tonight. Temperatures will be uh, dropping to around 30 or so later on and steady southwesterly winds up at about 4 to 8 miles per hour. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies and slightly stronger southwesterly winds up at about 5 to 10 miles per hour will combine to take temperatures to the mid-40s. Uh, Passing high and mid-level clouds may begin invading skies from the southwest as we get towards evening, and uh, that will continue to occur as we go uh, through the overnight, with uh, clouds thickening somewhat as well at that point. Uh, That should hold the overnight temperatures up in the low 30s on continued southwesterly winds. Friday, passing high and mid-level clouds uh, may hold temperatures down a little bit over what we see tomorrow, but will otherwise be in the low to mid-40s, with southwesterly winds continuing at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Slightly deeper uh, gulf moisture is uh, predicted to eventually begin circulating northward up the eastern plains. This would be later Friday and into Saturday as a weak cold front begins to approach from the northwest. So that may generate a few uh, showers uh, either as we go into Saturday morning or more likely through the day on Saturday. I'm not expecting terribly much from that, just maybe a few hundredths of an inch. And Saturday, I'll otherwise see uh, just a fair bit of uh, mostly passing mid-level cloud cover, I think. Uh, Temperatures will again reach 40 or so on southerly winds, veering more southwest and then west as we go overnight into Sunday. Temperatures will drop back to the low 30s, and Sunday should see uh, better uh, cloud breaking with temperatures back towards 40 or so, or at least the upper 30s. At the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 34 degrees. The dew point temperature is 17. Winds are out of the southwest at 6 miles per hour. Uh, Perfectly clear sky overhead, just a few passing strands of cirrus. And the barometer is at 30.62 inches of mercury and rising uh, slowly. We go now to December 1963, when Madison made history by adopting the first fair housing code in the state of Wisconsin. Stu Leviton has the historic details on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, December 1963. Madison makes civil rights history. 
1963, racial discrimination in housing was perfectly legal in Madison, Wisconsin, and very real. Only about 27% of the city's rental units and 12% of the houses for sale were available to non-whites. The city didn't even have a meaningful board or commission working for civil rights. Instead, there was the Mayor's Commission on Human Rights, the MCHR, which the Common Council created in 1952 as a powerless consolation prize for activists after their proposed fair housing ordinance was soundly defeated. In February 1962, attorney Lloyd Barbie, president of the state NAACP and chair of the mayor's commission, released the draft of a tough human rights ordinance banning bias in housing, employment, and public accommodations. But it went nowhere, and Barbie soon moved to Milwaukee to start a successful 16-year lawsuit against segregation in the public schools. He also got elected to the state assembly. In 1963, Marshall Colston, chair of the local NAACP and vice chair of the mayor's commission, took up the fight, pressing Mayor Henry Reynolds, a conservative businessman, to move the matter along. Not everyone agreed. Colston and others like him are making a big hullabaloo over a problem that doesn't exist, declared Darwin Schoon, executive vice president of the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Homeowners should be able to sell or not sell to anyone they chose, he said. Even as Schoon championed private property rights, racial unrest simmered on the Near East Side over word that a second black family might move into an area neighborhood. Several months of anonymous threats brought increased police surveillance. City Attorney Edwin Conrad started drafting an ordinance, working closely with a young attorney serving on the mayor's commission future Wisconsin Supreme Court Chief Justice Shirley S. Abrahamson. Both Colston and Abrahamson had been appointed to the commission by the former mayor, liberal Ivan Nestigan. Although the Mayor's Commission on Human Rights was largely toothless, it did have some very active members, especially Chair John McGrath and Secretary Betty McDonald. They created a group they called the Tuesday Night Committee to coordinate public support. Several hundred individuals became actively involved. Such citizen activism was the key. Mayor Reynolds would become an important supporter, but he did not initiate the effort. Neither did any alder. Without the NAACP's Lloyd Barbie and Marshall Colston, the Mayor's Commission on Human Rights, and the Tuesday Night Committee, Madison would not have acted when it did, if it acted at all. The broad base was necessary because the real estate industry— which supported segregated housing so strongly that the Board of Realtors disciplined members who sold houses in white neighborhoods to black buyers mobilized to fight the local fair housing provision just as it did the later federal effort. December 10, 1963 was United Nations Human Rights Day. It was not a good night for human rights in Madison. Back then, the Council met as the Committee of the Whole on Tuesdays for public hearings, debate, and a preliminary vote, with final votes on Thursday. More than 400 people packed the Council chambers that night for a six-hour Committee of the Whole meeting devoted entirely to the Equal Opportunities Ordinance. Supporters far outnumbered opponents, except from the real estate industry. The only realtor there in support was Patrick J. Lucy, owner of Madison's largest real estate company. Negroes here are the victims of a vicious and effective conspiracy, a disgrace for which we must all share the guilt, 
the future governor and ambassador said. But the official position of the city's realtors, firm opposition, was expressed by Board of Realtors President Earl A. Espeseth, who acknowledged some discrimination but insisted, quote, city people can take care of the problems on a voluntary basis. At the time, Espeseth was a commissioner of the Madison Housing Authority. After all their coordinated organizing, supporters faced an unforeseen problem as the meeting unfolded. A young black activist from the campus chapter of Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, he told the council that even if the measure passed, his group would continue to send whites and blacks to test for compliance. Although Tom Bolden, co-chair of the Mass and Corps chapter, later assured the council that testing would stop if the ordinance passed, Council President Alder Richard Kopp didn't care. I don't think the residents of any ward have to answer to a group of university students under any circumstances, he said. Introduced and strongly supported by conservative Mayor Henry Reynolds, the fair housing measure also had its strongest council support from conservatives, led by older persons Ethel Brown, Harrison Garner, and William Bradford Smith. Its sharpest opposition came from aldermen aligned with labor, including COP, railroad switchman Leo Cooper, and union leader Harold Babe Rohr, who called the NAACP, quote, a malicious force, even though his district contained more than 55% of Madison's black population. Let's face it, the Southsider said, the whole world is built on prejudice and discrimination. Northside Alder Cop acknowledged there's some discrimination in Madison, but he asked, should we pass a law just because there are a few bigots? It's the very minimum we can do, Mayor Reynolds replied, so that we can go on record and say that all our citizens are equal as far as the city council is concerned. After almost two hours of debate, the chamber was still packed when the committee voted 12 to 10 to delete the entire housing provision. As the conservative pro-ordinance Wisconsin State Journal noted, five aldermen endorsed by the liberal pro-ordinance Capital Times voted against fair housing. After a motion to kill the entire ordinance failed 13 to 9, the council adjourned at 1.30 in the morning. The setback was bitter but represented some progress from the 14 to 5 defeat, a similar weaker measure authored by then-alderman Ivan Nestigan suffered in 1952. Fair housing advocates had 42 hours to get at least one vote changed so Mayor Reynolds could break an 11-11 to tie. It was the council's first and then still only female member, 10th Ward Alder Ethel Brown, who crafted the critical compromise to exempt rooms in private homes and owner-occupied apartment buildings with four or fewer units. Westside Alder William Bradford Smith later said Brown's idea wasn't just tactical, but also, quote, to reflect the attitudes of her constituents in University Heights. Many of them rented rooms to UW students, Smith noted, but, quote, wouldn't want to open their homes to people of all races and colors where they would have to share the same bathroom. Brown's amendment was quickly adopted, starting a dizzying display of legislative freestyling that exempted absentee landlord apartments and all single-family homes from coverage. And as a backlash to the core testing activities, the council also adopted the motion by Wilmar Area Alder George Elder, making it unlawful for anyone without a, quote, bona fide intention 
to offer or to buy or rent housing, quote, for the sole purpose of securing evidence of a discrimination practice as defined in this ordinance. So no private testing for compliance. As distraught supporters watched the wreckage of exemption after exemption and considered pulling the matter entirely, an unexpected savior appeared. For all the advocates organizing, it took a bewildering move by an opponent to make the measure meaningful. I'm afraid that is all the time we have for this broadcast version of this week's Madison in the 60s. For the exciting conclusion of this important story, please set your browser to wortfm.org. For your award-winning, listener-supported, history-honoring WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writers this evening were David Ahrens and Gigi Royko Maurer. Special thanks to featured contributors Riley Cutright and Stu Levitan. Katie Georgella is our on-air engineer this evening. Faye Parks produced the newscast, and Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Theo Alegria. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>